Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas, your podcast on everything escape rooms. This week we are going to be talking puzzles with Matthew Stein. You know, it's really cool because in the world of the puzzling, there are so many creators and I keep hearing about all of them and I never get a chance to actually talk to them. I hear Matthew Stein name come up all the time. I think it was Lisa and David that had some wonderful things to say about you, Matt. But I, before I should, before I get started like that, I, I was going to welcome. Oh, I should also introduce myself. Yes. <laughs> You're already derailed. I forgot again. Like, <laughs> we were telling Matthew earlier, like Errol's style is normally to get excited about something and then ask a question, and he got excited right away. Just yeah, I got excited right because it's about puzzles. Oh yeah. my! My name is Errol. I'm Manda, and we are. Joy- Joined today by Matthew Stein, puzzle designer extraordinaire. And so we, uh, Errol connected with you through, what was it, Errol? I can't remember. Uh, well, I mean, well, the th- funny thing is, I, I, can't, I know I connected with Matthew on Discord, but I don't know what started that off. I'm not too sure. I don't, know if, I, I don't know if I just went and bothered you. You might have just or, shouted puzzles in all caps or something. Yeah, I, I might have just and, bothered you, Matthew. And, and then you remembered <laughs> because I wanted to talk to you on the podcast. Anyway, before we get into that, yes, this is Matthew Stein. However, we should probably let Matthew talk a bit more about himself and all the things he's involved in. Hello, it's so wonderful to be here. And... I'm really excited to be talking about both of you. I've heard many wonderful things about both of you. And this is the first time we're having like a full real length conversation. Yeah. yeah. Semi-virtual real life mediated by screens. Uh, So as Earl already said, I'm a puzzle designer. I'm one of those rare full-time real life puzzle designers. I have to explain that puzzle designer is actually a legitimate profession. And then people ask me what jigsaws I make. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) Uh, I have a very interdisciplinary background. I actually was a full-time industry software engineer up until about a year ago, working at a big big tech company. Didn't really like that that much. I get excited about what I'm building and, you know, that that doesn't really jive that well with with industry. Um, But I'm really grateful for my engineering background, actually, because that plays into a lot of the puzzles I make, both architecturally and in in implementation. but I actually come from a, more than just a puzzle background. I'm a violinist and composer. I've been doing this weird treasure hunting hobby called letterboxing for many years. Ooh. I, along with that, carve stamps and do a lot of other printmaking. I write and make books and things, book binding. We, sh- we should probably narrow down to what don't you do, and then... Uh, no, I'm really <laughs> Nothing related to sport. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Same here. In fact, I remember somebody once asked me, like, um, what else don't you do? And I said, well, I'm actually really useless in the real world. I can't put up shelving. So if you were to set me out in the wild, I would die. So that's pretty much... That's there's a huge skill set there that I rely on everybody for. Now I was gonna bring up the fact that you you said that you play the violin. That's really cool. Have you like made a lot of music puzzles? I know that's probably a very niche area to make puzzles for, but I can imagine fairly niche. But I have made quite a few music puzzles. Um, 
when people ask me about music puzzles, oftentimes they're thinking more sort of song identification trivia type puzzles, but I'm more into like classical music, obscure world music and music theory type puzzles. Mm-hmm. So oh, cool. I have made a range of puzzles, both for people who don't play music. I recently made a puzzle for a private group where it was just a bunch of donuts. And then it turns out that it was a pun on donuts having dough at the beginning. And each donut represented a solfege syllable and the donuts were all music. And you had to find out which solfege (laughs) syllables were missing, ranging to really arcane uh, harmonic analysis musical puzzles. Oh, dear. That sounds (laughs) very difficult. You know, if I knew you played the violin, I would have asked you to bring it. I was going to say, Harold gets very excited. I was excited. (laughs) You actually have it here in my room. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. A little bit of serenading later. Yeah. I could be convinced. <laughs> uh, I was really excited about the bookbinding too. Bookbinding, that sounds fun. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Totally def- definitely puzzles in that. And you so- know everything about bookbinding, man pans. Remember yeah. a friend of ours on the subway would talk to us about bookbinding? Yeah. <laughs> Do I remember that? Which friend? <laughs> I remember David. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name anyway oh, we talk oh, about yeah, yeah yeah oh wait yes yes okay yes i do remember that now yes he was into book binding anyway uh, but before we get into like yeah. other stories of nothing yeah. to do with <laughs> puzzles. Or puzzles what is your origin story of puzzles like you are deep into the abyss of puzzle creation so it must yes. have started somewhere so my journey in the formal world of puzzles really began about 10 years ago when I got into puzzle hunts. I think my first puzzle hunt was designed by Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy champion. And it was some sort of Abraham Lincoln anniversary for the Smithsonian. And oh. it was the first time I had heard of this format of puzzle hunts of you have some puzzle that doesn't necessarily look like a recognizable puzzle format that solves to a word or phrase as an answer. And then there's a meta puzzle. And this really excited me. I got super into it, almost one, but had to actually give a concert right when the meta puzzle was released. So alas. Um, but after that, I was like, ooh, I really like this structure. I want to make it myself. So the following summer, I made a letterboxing puzzle hunt in Eastern Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And Uh, made about a dozen puzzles themed on the different uh, Herculean labors and hit letterboxes for each one. It was a whole elaborate thing. And it turns out one of the people who was playing that game, who was actually playing remotely, she lives up in New Hampshire, was on an MIT Mystery Hunt team and mentioned to me, if you're doing this sort of stuff, you'd probably like the mystery hunt, which was my first introduction to the mystery hunt. So for a few months leading up to the mystery hunt, which happens uh, every January in Martin Luther King weekend, I was digging through all the old mystery hunt archives, resolving many of the old puzzles, picking out which ones I liked and which I didn't like. I thought I was prepared. I was not remotely prepared because no one can be the first mystery hunt. But I joined my team, Palindrome, which I've been on for about eight years now. And it was an absolute blast. It was like, these are my people. Hmm. And to fast forward momentarily, my team, Palindrome, actually just won the mystery hunt. Congratulations. Congrats. 
simultaneously the most exciting thing and also the most daunting and scary because yeah for those of you listening who might not know the MIT mystery hunt has this sort of framing rule that the team that wins each year's hunt then writes the next year's hunt so my team will actually be writing next year's 2022 mystery hunt it's weird to even say 2022 (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah I I did I I remember talking about that with uh with another guest actually and Dan Egner. Dan Egner. Dan Egner. It oh, was yeah. Dan Egner. Yeah. And From team left out who it was like great prize. Hooray. But it's a cool rule actually. I, I like that. That's and every year they always seem to, you know, up the game every single time. So truly. And it's remarkable and also scary, as I was saying, just how much the the stakes and scope and intricacy increase each year in past years in well most years well every single year except for this year it happens on site at MIT and some people many people on each team solve remotely but there's Mm -hmm. a decent amount of in-person events and physical puzzles and such this year as you'd expect it was fully virtual and the team that wrote Whoosh Galactic Trendsetters Meow, that is their full team name. Wow. The airplanes and their emojis are pronounced as whoosh and meow. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right if anybody from Galactic is listening. <laughs> they actually created a full virtual world, a virtual version of the MIT campus. What? Wow. was mind-blowingly robust and had puzzles in it. It even had a, a an escape room in one part of it. And... <laughs> Rather than having uh, the normal unlock mechanics as you do in a puzzle hunt where you solve one puzzle and it gives you some points, it gives you solving puzzles unlocks more puzzles, basically. In this hunt, solving a puzzle unlocked the ability to unlock the next puzzle, but you actually had to go and find the next puzzle in this virtual world before you could get access to it. Uh. So it required a lot of really fascinating and engaging interaction with this virtual space, which just beautifully reproduced the feeling of being walking around campus and being alongside other teams. The most mind-blowing thing about that concept to me, actually, as we found out in the the Hunt's wrap-up, was that they started building this virtual world before they even knew the Hunt was going to be fully virtual. Oh, really? They just wanted to build this, and then it turned out to be the the perfect tool for this year's Hunt. I, I would leave it up to, like, puzzle designers and enthusiasts and really just computer enthusiasts to, to do something like, you know, it'd be cool. Make a virtual like MIT campus. Let's do it. <laughs> just but for com- funsies. Yeah. yeah. But coming back to the original question, that was sort of my origin in puzzle hunts, but I've been into puzzles my entire life. I, my first puzzle memories were actually when I was a really little kid and my family used to go on beach vacations and I would always after sort of getting settled in our hotel, go to the hotel's office and get the annual puzzle treasure hunt. And for some reason, I bought into this idea that our hotel made us a puzzle hunt every year that (laughs) took me around town sort of on this wondrous tour, noting different details, gathering information. As I found out years later, my mom ran around and made a puzzle hunt as soon as we got into town. And then secretly handed it to the front desk person who then gave it to me a few hours later. So, wow. Oh. Mom's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what really sticks out to that, it sticks out about that to me is beyond just the action itself, the approach to wonder that it's not someone who cares about me providing wonder, but that it just is 
pervasive in the world around me. The fact that it would come from a random hotel is so much more magical than my mom handing it to me. Sorry, <laughs> mom. That's, that's... It's just as magical coming from you. But... <laughs> no, mom, it's, listen, you you're still like amazing. You've, you feel like you've stumbled onto something secret, right? And you've... Uh, exactly. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, I get that feeling. It's like an ARG feeling. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when I was 12 years old, actually, I started letterboxing. And so I've been at it for over half of my life now. And wow. I'm really lucky to have grown up in a community in Eastern Pennsylvania, which was really into puzzle clues for letterboxing. And the clues are oftentimes mind-blowingly intricate, involving hours of puzzle solving in advance or site-specific puzzle solving. Oh, so there have okay. been some where I've had to do really intricate in the field interactions. And... I'm, I'm still infinitely grateful to that as sort of a library of puzzle concepts to pull upon in my current work, uh, thinking about how you can impart your specific perspective to guide people through a physical space and really get them to see it in a new way. Now, for those that don't know, if you'd like to explain what letterboxing yeah. is. Like me, what's letterboxing? Yes, <laughs> I started with that, so thank you. Letterboxing is a real-life treasure hunting hobby, which is sort of the precursor by over 100 years to geocaching, which more people may be familiar with. Forward instructions, directions to, as I was saying, very cryptic uh, means of getting you to a specific location. When you get to that location, there is a small box hidden, and each box contains a hand-carved rubber stamp and a logbook. When you find one of these, you stamp an image of the box's stamp into your own logbook, and your own personal stamp into the box's logbook. Then repackage everything as you found it, rehide it, and move onwards. And I actually have next to me one of my logbooks. Um, so Ooh. yeah, all sorts of really, oh, you know, all sorts of spoiler damn. theory, but all yeah, sorts of gorgeous stamps. Whoa. Um, Those are huge. You sneak peeks. Um, so to date, I found over 5,000 letterboxes and hidden about 300 of my own. Um, all over the world. <laughs> and some have been very straightforward adventures. Some have been some of the most magical experiences I've had. So it's been, definitely recommend checking it out. I kind of do want to, yeah. Sort of wow. more, I'm going to offend some geocachers here, but it's an artsier version of geocaching. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the gloves are off. Um. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So when so uh, how did you oh I'm sorry go ahead man pants go ahead no it's okay you got so this. how did you start professionally into designing puzzles could you say you now do this as a professional thing yes uh, so as I mentioned I was post college worked as a software engineer for a few years during that time living in San Francisco I started making increasingly more intricate puzzle hunts for my communities uh, more intricate letterboxing puzzle hunts. Uh, collaborating with other puzzle designers for uh, sort of corporate puzzle hunts. And at some point, I just realized there's sort of a limit to what I can do with this as a side hobby. And there were some larger projects that I wanted to pursue more full time. So in August 2019, I power move, quit my full time job and was like, I'm a puzzle designer now. <laughs> and have sort of been finding my way through that for the past year and a half, um, making a pretty wide range of content from custom puzzle hunts to small puzzle driven games for birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, to 
full-on ARGs to escape room consulting and pop-up escape rooms and such. To date, I've been staying away from brick and mortar escape rooms, which given the times right now probably was the best decision, (laughs) but I haven't actually mentioned escape rooms. I've been an avid avid escape room enthusiast for uh, six years now and played about 200 something escape rooms. Nice. So I am equally in love with immersive puzzle-based entertainment. So that's a, that's a huge, so I know one of Errol's struggles when he makes puzzles is, um, many how, things. there's so many struggles, how one make, of the main like ones that hating me and all sorts of things. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> what, one of the main ones, the ones he constantly complains about at least is, uh, creating puzzles for different groups of people and 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 trying to cater to that group's difficulty and so from what you describe you have a wide range of people like you know like say for birthdays or an ARG which can be incredibly complex um so what was it what's it been like you in your experience like designing for different types of people and and how do you best gauge that when you when you first set out to design for them yeah they're really has been an incredibly wide range. And the greatest thing I've learned throughout this experience and continue to learn is just how important having a diverse diverse pool of playtesters and flexible playtesting processes are. I have a few different communities that I use for playtesting, but the problem is most of my playtesters, especially after they've playtested for me a number of times in the past, know how puzzles work. So if I'm making puzzles for a less sort of in the know puzzle audience, I do need to reach out to more extended networks, oftentimes just Facebook posts or reaching out to other people involved on the project to get kids or families or people of a certain demographic to look at look at the puzzles. Uh, playtesting also is very dependent on whether the puzzles can actually be playtested by individuals, which isn't always the case. So I had some really tricky playtesting projects recently. I made one puzzle hunt or sorry, uh, an ARG for a an EDM musician that was a secret release of an album that branched off of another album. And it was specifically intended for his hardcore community of super fans. And many of the puzzles we wrote for this, I, I wrote this game with a good friend, Emma Little, and many of the puzzles that we wrote were intended for large groups of people and could only be solved by large groups of people. So one of them involved a almost 24 hour long geoguesser where the image changed every 12 minutes. Oh. And we programmatically generated this puzzle and it was a massive effort on, on the part of the community, but obviously not something that we could throw actual human play testers on. Mm-hmm. So we did sort of a random sampling play test and hoped for the best. It mostly worked, they got the answer reasonably the when i said we programmatically generated this we drew out something we wanted to visually represent on a map sampled random points and then used the google maps api to query the street views at those points problem is one of these views was inside a yarn shop so it turns out even after the solvers solved the puzzle i believe they spent over 10 hours trying to figure out which yarn shop in LA we had pictured in this puzzle, thinking that this one last bit of information might be of some relevance. Wow. So you get into some weird edge cases like that. Another, <laughs> another consideration with playtesting is 
medium of the puzzle. So most of the puzzles that I've made are digital, especially right now, um, even though I do make puzzles with more physical elements in person. But I worked on one project a few months ago for a print journal. Um, it's, so I have that sitting here. Uh, a new beautiful journal, speaking of book binding, we're just open stitching on this. Um, by the Art of Play, a playing card and game puzzle company based out of uh, Southern California. And uh, available now. Um, <laughs> and where can you find that? At tangramjournal.com or on the Art of Play website. Um, this was a really exciting project in that the puzzles weren't sort of relegated to a puzzle section of the journal, but rather hidden throughout the full content of this 128-page journal. Oh, cool. The problem is, for playtesters, one, I couldn't get them physical copies of the journal because the timeline didn't work to give them proof copies. So, And some puzzles were very dependent on specific sizing. So it led to me having to give specific printing instructions, which then sort of gave away a few of the components of what the puzzle was. The other is that I playtested before the full journal was finished, and one of the sort of upfront puzzles is figuring out where the puzzles are. What is a puzzle? And without having the rest of the content, which is all inspired by wonder and patterns and uh, artwork and mathematics, all of that content is very puzzly as well. So when somebody's looking for the intentionally designed puzzle content, they may come across something that's not intended to be a puzzle, which just happens to look like a puzzle as well. So there are all sorts of playtesting challenges with that. And it just got released. So I'm really excited to see what people think of the sort of in the wild version, final product. Very cool. That looks so cool. Do you, is that like, do you prefer, do you have a preferred puzzle style or puzzle medium that you, that you like to design in? Sort of, I would say I have a preferred experiential effect of the puzzles that I design. So I like making puzzles that are really driven by the mechanics having some meaning and the process, the journey to, toward an aha moment, having narrative or deep thematic meaning. Mm -hmm. And that can take many different forms. And I know that that's a lot of sort of abstract buzzword sounding things. I, I don't know if we want to go deeper into that now or... I say, why not? I, I say we've, 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 we've touched it. on it and That's here we go. That's the reason why I asked you, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there are different styles of puzzle design. In escape rooms, oftentimes the puzzles are diegetic in fitting into the environment, but what you're asked to do in engaging with the puzzles doesn't really make that much sense just sort of pattern matching puzzles. And in those cases, the aha moment is less how to solve the puzzle than the action of doing it of something of the result in the room. And of course, there are plenty of exceptions to that, but that generally tends to be the style in escape rooms. In puzzle hunts, the mechanics of the puzzles tend to be naturally with more time and for a more sort of experienced solver audience, the mechanics tend to be much more intricate. But very rarely contribute to a story. I'm really interested in sort of the cross-section between those of having the implied process of a puzzle. You don't know what to do. A puzzle sort of has three stages. As A puzzle as an experience has three stages. There's sort of the initial misdirection. Then the, there's the process of working through the unknown and figuring out 
what the end goal is and how to get there. And then there's the aha, which is a massive paradigm shift. And in my process, I actually view puzzles more as experiences than as objects. So I see the puzzle not as the physical thing I create, but rather the experience that's prompted by that physical thing. So a crossword is not inherently a puzzle. The process of solving a crossword is a puzzle. And if a crossword is just, I know every single word and there's no hesitancy and I know the format, I'd be hesitant to even call that a puzzle in the puzzling sense. Whereas there are intermediate aha moments in many crossword clues. And there might be a structural moment when I realize that there's a mechanic to the theme answers or more commonly in cryptic crosswords where there's some underlying structural mechanic to the puzzle. There's a lot of potential in that, uh, in that design pattern. If we can harness what we're getting people to do more effectively, we can use that to tell a story as well. And that seems to be the most under, underutilized action in a lot of more immersive puzzle experiences. And Amanda, I, I've seen you talk a lot adjacent to this concept. So I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on, on this. Uh, my thoughts, like, it, it, I agree um, that, that it is, I think, again, uh, like, we think about escape rooms as having been around for a while, right? And and really, it's been about six or seven years now, I think, if we're going back to like the original one. And when you think about mediums, like artistic mediums or, or any sort of entertainment medium, that's actually still in its infancy and uh, and figuring out a new medium because it is, it's got inspiration from other ones. And it, it's sort of like, I've kind of talked about this. It's kind of like if you look at something like film in a way that took like 40 years to go from being a cool piece of technology to filming plays straight on to people who grew up with that, uh, you know, find that cool technology now wanting to tell their own stories and figuring out, Hey, this camera, if we move it a bit, it kind of makes you feel different and it kind of tells the story a lot better. So it, it's like figuring out how to use those mechanics and those, and those, um, those tools at your disposal on how to best do it. And with escape rooms, it's, this is a bit of continued struggle is you have your puzzles, you have your narrative and rarely do the two meet in the middle. People often make narrative the reward to a puzzle. Uh, like you solve a puzzle, you get a fun little bit of narrative um, as opposed to the puzzle itself is driving the narrative uh, and in fact is deeply integrated into it. Um how that's being solved. I think that, you know, that that dumb timer is always going to be a factor, right? And I think we need to get to a point where it's not something we fight anymore. It's something we work with. Uh, and, you know, trying to fight for somebody's attention is difficult. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about that? Yeah. So I think the biggest problem right now is thinking about puzzles versus story as competing elements. Yes. Yeah. One inclination I've seen in some games is to pull away from the puzzles, in which case, oftentimes you're sort of just left with bad immersive theater. <laughs> yep. Lots of friends here. <laughs> but I'm not arguing, so keep going. <laughs> the strength of escape rooms is prompting people to take actions. The reason before I was saying, think of puzzles as experience and not as object 
is because if we think of it as an experience, the aha moment is sort of a threshold that you cross and the end answer to a puzzle, even if it's sort of a binary state, it becomes less of a yes or no question. If the aha moment is what we're driving experiences towards, there's much more narrative nuance within that toolkit. So I think largely we just need to shift how we're thinking about story in escape rooms. We need to think about using puzzle mechanics to tell story. Because the puzzle mechanic is, is an object that prompts you to figure out how to do something and learning how to do something on your own is a really powerful moment. Rather than being told you should do this, you figure out that you should do this. There's a reason why. And those are key elements of story. So I've, I've seen it once before where um, the, and I've, I've mentioned this, this game on the podcast before, and it was an immersive theater show uh, about, you know, taking place in a video store. Uh, but the, the veneer of the video store didn't end up making much sense to this puzzle, but the way that the puzzles worked with the narrative did and it, I can talk about it because now because it's all closed up but long story short it was about a you know you 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 slowly discovering that this girl is going blind mm-hmm. and it's only after the fact or like just at the end where you start to make the connection that all these puzzles you've been solving have been depending less and less on your sight um and you didn't know that going in you didn't know uh you know it's this brother setting up a treasure hunt for his sister and so as the treasure hunts go on through the years um the puzzles themselves are are like depending more on feeling for a string on uh listening for sounds and the very first puzzle is like reading movie tapes and that kind of thing so um and that was a nice little thing because as well as having the ahas of the puzzles, you were having the aha of the narrative at the same time being like, Oh, this is why, like, this is why they're set up this way. And that was incredible. I haven't felt that in an escape room very often. I felt it in other types of games where you're like, you realize why you've been doing this all along. um, And it's deeply ingrained into the narrative. And so that was a nice moment. I think one of the, struggles and and I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this one of the other challenges uh you talk about the aha moment and i i love an aha moment i suck at aha puzzles if they're if they're especially if they're visual um but uh it's a really magical feeling when you when you solve something and you feel like yes i am the smartest person in the world and you don't think about the fact that somebody else has designed this and and clearly has tricked you for most for the good better part of three hours but um it's uh it's a great feeling the thing is is when i've seen one of the things that has come up when it comes to narrative is if you try to make something make more sense in the narrative, the puzzle becomes less aha. Like if you try and make a puzzle make sense in the world of the game, it becomes more about solving a problem and solving that problem usually involves more of a process. Like it's more of a process puzzle than it is an aha puzzle. Uh, Do you think it's possible to have those like more mimetic aha moments in games with the puzzles and the narrative tied together and still have it make sense to the world? Yes, I absolutely do. I'll start with sort of the icing on that, which is, as I sort of alluded to before, I I generally see puzzle experiences as being very liminal, like a puzzle is different for every single person. And we 
need to be more nuanced in how we address that. So a puzzle for me is something that leads up to an aha moment. So something that's just process is a task. And that, that means that something can be a puzzle for one person and not a puzzle at all for another person. So for instance, many of the common escape room tropes we see, any of us recognize those immediately now and they're not really puzzles for us. Whereas for somebody who's new to escape rooms, those might be puzzles still. If we're leading towards aha moments, you're right that they do sort of need to be more involved or more nuanced in their presentation oftentimes, but you can still experience an aha moment if you're sort of led to it, if you're assisted along the way. So more experienced solvers or solvers who are just having a good day might be <laughs> able to get to the aha moment on their own, but more flexible, more in-world hinting systems do a much better job of not feeling like the aha moment is diminished, but rather like it's just part of the story. The story keeper at Locurio is my absolute <laughs> favorite example of this. That is like the gold I, standard of, yeah. of uh, all, all hint systems, I feel like. <laughs> I had so much fun at that game. Oh my goodness. Everyone I had, had too much fun. You had too game. much fun, yes. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> But I think what that demonstrated is just that it takes a lot of thought, but is also not that complicated to make a really powerful in-world hint system, which actually contributes to rather than takes away from the effect of an experience. If we just continue to develop tooling and practices, sort of expand our uh, empathetic toolkit for how, how we lead people through different types of experiences in an escape room, we'll get much closer to that uh, meaningful intersection. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. Possible, not quite there, but <laughs> not quite I, there. it's a matter of pouring more thought into it. I'm actually working on an article right now about what I've been calling empathetic aha moments or empathy based Ooh. aha moments of this idea that if we define an aha moment to be, you need to put, put yourself in somebody else's shoes, whether you know it or not to get to this puzzle, that's sort of, for me, the gold standard of uh, an emotionally powerful puzzle or a narratively powerful puzzle. That would be really cool. Like, um, yeah, that would be really cool. Like, to solve the puzzle, you need to know someone and understand them. And yeah, that, oh, I won't, I won't dig too much into that one because you say you're writing an article. And so, I, you know, we should probably wait for the article to come out. Um, Errol, did you have any questions? You I don't know why we have man. to wait for the article to come out. Unless you have an NDA you can't talk about, then that makes more sense. But, you know, there's no a NDA for this one. Um, <laughs> I, it, it, it's a very deep rabbit hole, but I'll say for now, I think there are many examples of these sort of empathy-based aha moments out there. And the first step to knowing how to make them more effectively is to just call them by a name. The, the fact that we haven't been naming when somebody does that effectively in a game, in a story, in the real world, means that we aren't, we aren't regularly identifying examples that we can reference as, as case studies when we're trying to develop this on our own. So, Can you give us an example of one then, hopefully? One 
related example, which I'll give from a game I'm working on, which I'm fine spoiling because it's my <laughs> own game, is a project I'm working on right now called Escape the Plagues. And it's a social justice Passover puzzle game. Wait, wait, is, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. So you're going to spoil a little bit of the game or some major thing of the game? Just one mechanic. And for anybody listening to this, it won't spoil it at all. Okay, or okay. just cover your ears. Maybe we'll wave, yeah. and then, although some people are listening. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Matthew Stein. Yeah. <laughs> so this game is a print-and-play, which is actually fully paper-based, um, because we expect many people to play it around or on their Passover seders. We didn't want to have screens involved at, at a dinner table. Um, okay. So in this game, it's about four children sort of modeled on the archetypes of the wise, wicked, simple, and doesn't know how to ask children in the Passover story, but sort of more multidimensional modern takes on those characters. I'll, I'll not spoil too much of the story right now, but I'll say they go to various social justice oriented activities throughout their town. And in each of them, there's a lot of story and a little puzzle because this is intended for families. Um, and uh, speaking of broad audiences, a very broad audience. So we're trying to, uh, sort of have lots of layers to the experience that works well for different types of audiences who might play this. But in the first scene, they go to a protest, protesting pollution by a river. And one of the initial design goals for this game was that the action you take for each puzzle in some form embodies the action we want to model in these different social justice scenes. So in talking to one of my sister's friends, uh, my, my, I'm should mention I'm co-designing this with my sister, Lisa, who's hey. a really talented musician and educator. Um, Ooh, and another musician. What does she play? Yes. Sorry, I'm interrupting. This is She's exciting. a cellist and an opera singer. Oh, wow. You have stuff you've done together? We could, okay, sorry, I continue. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so in this first scene, we were talking to one of her friends who regularly goes to and leads protests. And she mentioned that oftentimes it's sort of hard to hear the exact words people are saying from the back of the protests. So I was like, ooh, that's, there's a puzzle in that. So the puzzle for this is actually a very common puzzle type. It's where you have seemingly a, a string of seemingly random words. And when you read them together, it makes a phrase. Except here, the phrases are real lines from protest songs. Oh, so cool. the action of the puzzle sort of takes that common mechanic and embodies the action of if you were at an actual protest, you might be mishearing lyrics. And to solve the puzzle, you have to listen closely and really key in on the meaning and, and the sound of each word in the song. So I'd say more like attention focused based aha, embodying an action we want people to do. But it is the attempt is to put people in experientially in a certain mindset. Cool. And that will be available when? Uh, that will be available starting March 1st. We have a website up now, escapetheplagues.com. And I'll, I can plug my social media later, but putting lots of announcements in my newsletter and everything. So um, there'll be lots of juicy behind the scenes photos. We're working with an incredible artist uh, who lives in Guatemala, Ooh. who is doing just amazing, magical, immersive artwork for this. You were mentioning that you became a full-time professional puzzle designer. So then do you have a company name? I do. I should have mentioned that earlier. My company <laughs> is named Enigmita. Enigmita. Or how do you spell that? E-N-I-G-M-I-D-A. 
Uh, so okay. it is enigma with an id in it. Also an anagram of imagined. <laughs> because, you know, the name has to have a puzzle in it also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it I like mean, .com uh, I'm taking? Or is it a, a, your website then? Would yes. Be? Uh, website is actually currently down right now, but enigmita.com leads you to the Instagram. Oh, cool. Cool. Very cool. That's awesome. So you mentioned like in your in your journeys then with with um, tying narrative into puzzles, where's your usual starting point in your design process? Because uh, I, I find that, you know, sometimes if you want a more narrative based game, that's usually where you start. But every every designer is different, right? Like everyone has their own process. Yeah. So when initially defining any puzzle project, but especially a more narratively driven one, you start off in this sort of open constraint space where anything could happen. The narrative could be anything. The puzzles could be anything. The actions you take along the way could be anything. Normally, I start to, if there is a pronounced narrative, I start to ground this whole open void with the narrative. I come up with sort of the shape of the story. I'll usually diagram out different arcs through the story, whatever I want to emphasize. Um, my exercise usually is, can I take the sort of flow chart of the story and make that exactly the puzzle structure as well? So have the gating, the key transition moments of the story be the key moments of solving puzzles. Um, and then from there, I will identify what types of actions I might want to take within the story. So if I am COVID times, my, the first example that came to my mind is if I'm washing my hands, then I'll figure out what kind of puzzle could I put to washing my hands? I did actually write a puzzle based on washing my hands earlier on in quarantine. Um, and, and then maybe it's songs that I can sing for 20 seconds and sort of work backwards like that. Take the actions of the story, figure out what recognizable puzzle mechanics they fit well towards or what puzzle mechanics I can modify or come up with from scratch. And then there's a back and forth. I say, now that I have the general shape of the puzzles, does the story make sense? Do I still get the story in its full, full originally intended effect from the architecture of the game? And if I don't, I have a bit of back and forth. I might adjust the story if there's space to do that in the project and just sort of continue to balance the scales until it feels like the puzzles are supporting and embodying the story and vice versa. Generally, one of my design rules in puzzles is that the more constrained the puzzle is, the more satisfying it is to solve. That is, the more it seems like magic that an answer could come from this, the more magical it'll be for somebody to solve it. Um, what I've learned is that coming back to different audiences, that works really well for puzzle hunt crowds. That sometimes doesn't work as well for newer crowds because even if what they have to do is fairly simple, if it seems on the surface unlikely to produce a result, they're oftentimes less likely to just try something. So. I still don't shy away from taking that approach with newer audiences, but I will often soften it a little bit, whether that's with more flavor text, with more sort of semi-instructional test text, or just with more hand-holding, more signposting. Just a audio thing. Just start here and go there. Okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sometimes it's really hard. <laughs> Poor Errol. He's, he was nodding, uh, for those just listening, uh, he was nodding sagely along with this, uh, with with that, especially with the audiences. I know that um, 
even with especially with like not just different audiences with in terms of puzzles but different audiences in terms of mediums too like you might have we found or like when errol did his cryptex hunt for instance uh you know we'd get the escape room crowd there and they're used to solving escape room puzzles uh they are not used to solving puzzle hunt puzzles so even though they're not necessarily newbies to a puzzle world necessarily they were newbies to that particular medium and it's it's a war Escape rooms and puzzle hunts are a world of difference in terms of uh, difficulty and style. <laughs> so, and then but, I'm also just thinking about my sister, who's lazy. My sister, she, she solves is. so many things, but then she's just very lazy. She just says, I, "Just tell me, just tell me." Tell me. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the dream. Uh, the the dream is to to see these very integrated games. I think uh, to an extent, like you know, video games even are still. Uh, figuring that out they're they've come a long way um but you know when you see like for instance if you take the first mist game uh which very much was puzzles slapped on top of a very thin veneer of a, of a narrative and when i was young when i was like first played mist i got the book the novel and when i found all of this crazy backstory to the entire game i was like wow i didn't know so much backstory could go into this and it wasn't until their second game though where you see this huge leap in um their puzzles making more sense to the actual world that they're in and it was far more integrated far more streamlined uh far more like like the narrative was deeply tied with the puzzles you weren't you were you weren't just solving a puzzle for the sake of solving a puzzle you were solving a puzzle to get somewhere to solve a problem but also the puzzles were actually made sense in the context that they were in too like it's something you would find in that world and there was a good reason for finding it there um so in that sense they've come a long way but again the the difference being that you have all the time in the world to sit there and and take it in and 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 uh and train yourself to to figure to get that aha moment uh whereas in an escape room you don't have as much time to do that so it, yeah i'm never sure what to do about that timer <laughs> oh my gosh like when people come from escape rooms and go over to a puzzle hunt and they're like wait this puzzle might take three to four hours to solve what or just the concept of having layers in a puzzle it's yeah it's like well it's been 10 minutes we haven't solved it so if we could get a hint please yeah, and, and, broken. yeah. Um, another major dimension in all of this is just trust in the designer and trust in the designer having a consistent standard for elegance within a puzzle the way i approach elegance is probably pretty universally acknowledged within the main like mainstream puzzle hunt world that feels like a bit of an oxymoron but it's a thing um basically that answer structure follows parallel structure, doesn't intentionally have red herrings, makes sense. You're not getting random sequences of things. And of course, in escape rooms, you get a random sequence of numbers that doesn't mean anything. That just screams like, unless there's some justification that somebody set their combination to a random number, I'm like, no, what? <laughs> the, I, back to aha moments like that that's just such a sort of delayed aha moment if especially if the puzzle solution doesn't lock in perfectly you're delayed the gratis gratification gratification 
Gratification. There we go. Thank <laughs> Gratification is a great word, too. That's a great word, actually. You're delayed the gratification of knowing that you solved the puzzle until the lock clicks open. And the satisfaction of a lock clicking open, it, it's still satisfying, but after you've popped open like hundreds of locks, it's it's a little <laughs> bit less satisfying. Um, whereas if something, if, if a message appears or an instruction appears, that means something within what you're doing that has just so much more power to it. But in, in I, I, I see a lot of sort of what I would personally consider design flaws in the cross section between the escape room and puzzle hunt worlds. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. I think it's just, there's not enough cross pollination between these two worlds. So some of these like parallel answer structure, if I'm solving some puzzles and the first three puzzles solve to a three digit number where the digits are in the range zero to four. And then the next puzzle solves to one single digit. I'll think I'm not done with that puzzle because I'll expect there to be other digits or maybe I missed something or is there another step? Mm -hmm. It it just wouldn't make sense. Whereas I think coming from an escape room world where it's just random combinations oftentimes, at least in gen one escape rooms, there, there isn't as obvious a fault in in that. Like a a consistent mechanic almost like an answer mechanic where uh you you start to get trained on like okay this is the way it's going to go i kind of know what what to expect now from the next puzzle or what i need to solve to exactly if 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 it seems like the game is starting to establish a pattern it breaks my trust in the game's design if that pattern gets broken yes because yeah. then I don't know what else might get broken, unless the game is intentionally trying to subvert my expectations in some yeah. intentional way, intentional way, which puzzle hunts often do as well. And it's one of the things I love most in puzzle hunts, just like breaking down the frames of games. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't know what your policy is on spoilers here, but I, I can mention one specific puzzle hunt puzzle, which I just loved recently. It's a puzzle hunt that's already over. Oh, cool. Well, we'll put a spoiler alert here with a possibility of editing out later if we if we decide it's too spoilery. But if you are listening and don't want any spoilers on a puzzle hunt puzzle, stop listening. Hooray. Okay, go for it. Yes, there was a puzzle in a recent hunt which was called Puzzle Not Found. And for those computer literate, that immediately brings to mind a 404 page. Mm-hmm. So initially the content on the puzzle page is blank. You go to the 404 page of the Hunt's website. It has the first piece of the puzzle, which then unlocks a bunch of other information on the main puzzle page, which are all dates in April, which April, the fourth month, they're different 400 codes. Uh, one of them was, I forget what the name of the exact code is. It's like too many attempts. So there's a rule at the beginning of the game that you have max 20 guesses for each puzzle. And we were like, how do we, oh, you have to overload the answer checker for that puzzle. And only when you get an error that you've used up all your guesses, do you get that piece of the puzzle, which I'm sure would absolutely hate. It was the scary moment of like, is this what we're supposed to do? The fact that it's something that's forbidden. It's like, especially if you're on attempt 19, you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do 20. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty cool though. That that but, is very cool. And I the, do sorry, go ahead. Oh, just the, the beautiful thing about the puzzle hunt community is 
when you have shared expectation, shared experience, the puzzle can then be very intentionally subverting people's expectations. So we see the framing of how a hunt gets run on a website as sort of the outer frame of the game. But as soon as we shatter that, suddenly what else is possible? Yeah, I would say getting back to your statement about trusting the puzzle designer Back in the day when escape rooms first started and you didn't trust, you went to another escape room and it was just like learning all over again. What, what are these people going to do now? And it's like, really? And, and that was just it. That's, that's why I wrote so many articles back in the day because it just annoyed the heck out of me. about all the, oh, all the problematic puzzle design things I kept running into time and time again, but it's less so now, or I'm just doing more escape rooms that are good because yeah. they are picked for me. <laughs> that might be more of a thing. Another uh, thing I haven't mentioned yet, actually, speaking of escape rooms being picked for me, is uh, you were mentioning before you heard of me through David and Lisa. I am, have been a hive mind reviewer for Room Escape Artist Ooh. since basically the start of quarantine. I think I've reviewed over 70 games for them now, oh which has been an absolute blast and my fellow hive mind reviewers are the most fun teammates to play with. And it's also just been enjoyable and very educational to see a broad sampling of what people have been making during quarantine, all the new formats of virtual games. Uh, my, whereas in in-person games, I'm usually looking for a certain standard of quality in games that I choose. They're, isn't always that expectation in online games, especially toward the beginning, because people were putting out some really interesting stuff that just because they put it out quickly wasn't as polished as games often are. But there were some really, really cool things happening and and still happening. Um, So I went into this mode of, if this game makes me have more than a five minute conversation afterwards, I wanna play it. Um, (laughs) There still carries through and I think applies to most games out there. But if it's just like, yeah, I've seen this before, it's not as interesting. If it's a horrible game, but did like one really interesting framing or put the players in a unique role, character role, absolutely into that. And and many of the most successful online games have been so because they've been clever in making use of the online medium and how they position players within an experience. One thing with the the online medium that the brick and mortars don't have is more control over what the players see. So you have that ability now to have a cutscene, quote unquote cutscene or something. Like you have a control of the camera. You can make your players look at something. They're not going to scatter off to the winds while you do your opening narration. Like you can, you know, focus it on you being like, yeah, I'm all you got to look at right now. So you have to listen to me. I also enjoy, I, uh, yeah, the amount of experimentation going on in online in the online format. I feel like there's more of a freedom there that the brick and mortars didn't necessarily have because there's a lot more expense with with the brick and mortars, right? You got to run a business. You have to do what people are going to come to, and uh, and you know, it's a lot of money to invest in these in like elaborate sets and that kind of thing. So, you know 
experimenting and trying something new is a lot riskier in in that sense so it's it's kind of fun to see what's what's been going on um since covid now it also could be i have more access to escape rooms now right so i'm probably seeing some more interesting stuff because i don't have to physically run off to to you know like australia or europe to see what what new things are are cropping up not directly in response to that but a related theme that's sort of is a sister to everything we've been talking about is just themes in escape rooms, which I'd love to get some of your thoughts on. And I've been, I'm, I'm also write, writing an article on this, uh, co-writing with uh, Risa Puno um, on oh, nice. problematic themes in escape rooms, which are, in my opinion, one of the, or not one of, single-handedly the top factor sort of holding back escape rooms evolution relative to other industries. The fact that we still have asylum games the majority of prison games and a slew of other themes, which wouldn't have flown in other narratively based mediums 20 years ago is really frustrating, just disappointing oftentimes. I I, I feel like, yeah, like uh, Errol could speak to this too, like asylum games, for instance, I have troubles with those too, because they kind of remind me of what people thought asylums were like, 25 years ago in film like you'd see like you know they're going to the asylum it's gonna be uh, you know and and it's gonna be crazy and oh look crazy doctors crazy serial killer doctor and everybody who's quote-unquote crazy kind of like just talks to themselves in a manic fashion you know in, in a big long monologue that never stops and in film and television they're a lot more sensitive to that now when they portray uh, mental health in television and film. Now it's, it's a lot more delicately handled. You don't really see that often anymore. The serial killer movie where they're sitting like head slightly lowered and eyes raised um, holding a needle in their hand, ready to kill you kind of thing. Um, so it feels like a step backwards for escape rooms. Uh, I think it was just, it's a good horror trope. Somebody saw Saw and, uh, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's a, it's a movie that really digs into that kind of trope. And it, it, because it saw is like a challenge puzzly type of movie. Uh, it made it a natural kind of fit for an escape room. I think there are ways you can handle it. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's it's tough like when it's gamified like that uh but i i think it can be done effectively what do you think earl uh i'm trying to actually think of the last time i may have watched or played that i don't watch as much media as other people no that's not exactly true i watch an intense amount of media but i don't watch normal media so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> what's common or not well, well even in the if like if a if an asylum is being portrayed in the 30s now for instance right no like, I, I mean I, I understand what you're saying i just yeah. don't i'm i can't say what's being watched or not watched now you did mention though that you're writing this article with risa puno where are you writing it and hopefully releasing it Yes, uh, more information on that soon. We are still deciding the exact means of releasing it, but uh, we're... There's so many cliffhangers in this podcast. No. <laughs> My life is a cliffhanger. Um, basically, in the article, we're saying three things. Why this matters, why it's important to think about these elements when coming up with a theme for an escape room. 
specifically when players of all sorts of backgrounds are going to be embodying a certain character in the immersive space, then going through giving specific examples of where this comes up, just trying to connect it into existing literature. And finally, just giving people tips on where to start and thinking about this. Um, the inclusion channel on the escape room, I almost said Slack, the escape room Discord um, has a lot of really productive discussions around this, yet there's no uh, permanent space to reference this information that I know of to date. So just trying to make a lot of these conversations and questions that we should all be asking because there often are no simple answers to them, um, make, making them more prominent and more uh, accessible. Brett Keener's document. At that, you know, that seems to co collate all the escape room documents. So, yes. Oh, yeah. That's right. um, but, Manda, to your point, absolutely, most of these themes, I think, can be approached in really positive and not offensive ways. So, thinking in the immersive theater realm, Then She Fell is one of my all time favorite immersive theater shows and takes place in an asylum, but in a very effective and respectful and thoughtful way. And yeah. there, there are ways to deal with mental health in escape rooms, but you sort of have to know about mental health a bit more than crazy people make strange <laughs> gestures. Or <laughs> yeah. if you're using the phrase crazy people, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and when you see, yeah, it's like, oh, look, they're writing in blood on the walls again. Um, and I mean, pr prison escape rooms are equally egregious in voluntarily being a prison imprisoned in most contexts gamifies something which for large groups of people in this country that is not something that can or should be gamified and is likely in large part holding back the overall community both as creators and enthusiasts from being more diverse i'm curious what you think on the on the video game perspective of it i think of a game like for instance this war of mine which is a game it's a game about um oh my gosh i can't believe i for just forgot the country's name is it syria syria syrian oh my god thank you That's wow echo, I, I can't. echo just yelled it out from behind thank you that is exactly all the other uh but it was uh, about the war in syria and it is about surviving as a family and you have to make choices throughout so you have to go and collect resources much like you would in a lot of games um you know feed your family but then you have to make horrible choices like do i steal from this old couple um and to get their food or do i leave them alone knowing that my family's going to suffer so it like forces you in into that and it was i haven't played it i'm like i am not prepared <laughs> to play that game ever uh even saying like play that game sounds weird it mm -hmm. was really praised for how it handled it um it's a very intense theme uh, an intense story but in in those cases like it's technically gamifying it but it's it it was delicately handled and do you think that could be something like that could be done with escape rooms absolutely and i think that's exactly one of the directions that I'd love to see escape rooms move in. I, in most of my work, have the luxury of basically trying to view what I'm creating as art. And I think a lot of escape rooms see themselves as not having that luxury of being purely commercial and needing to not offend anyone and appeal to the broadest audience. 
but the downside of that is, well, for the reasons we were just talking about, some of them do still offend many people and don't really, overall, they don't really make a point. But I think we can make art, we can make experiences that are not sort of top 10 mission-based themes that are still exciting and meaningful. And just as somebody goes to a play not expecting it to be a 100% happy children's show or exciting, fully action-based thriller, yeah, we can lead people through other types of experiences. And we have evidence in other domains that, again, this, this might require a bit of a industry shift in how we talk about escape rooms and how we talk about themes and difficulty and content warnings and such. But I think we can have themes which are equally exciting or maybe even aren't exciting, but are just telling important stories. And people want to hear all sorts of stories. So if we expand the types of stories, we think we can convey through escape rooms or, I mean, as most of us, I assume, have thought about escape room is sort of a misnomer at this point for most of what we're talking about. It's <laughs> I know, right? Escape and it probably shouldn't just take place in a room. Well, you're seeing so, more goal-based things, right? Like you're not, yeah. yeah. I think the, puzzle-based yeah. immersive entertainment. <laughs> I think there are a ton of untapped themes out there that, yeah, it's like you don't have to fall back on prison, tomb. Uh, yeah, like let's desecrate someone's tomb because that's the thing. One day um, there will be more dirigible escape rooms. You want a dirigible? I made the joke and everyone's making fun of me now because I'm like, I'm going to make a forensic accounting escape room. I'm going to do it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be oh great. And- I made a half joke, only half a joke though, to a friend a few weeks ago that the only truly acceptable prison escape room would be uh, doing pro bono pro bono legal work, helping a, somebody who was falsely imprisoned try and get out, accompany them to their trial, and they don't escape because the justice system is totally broken. <laughs> oh, wow. oh yeah, that's like that's like totally not a commercial thing at all. Like where you want to give your players that dopamine hit at the end to be like, yeah, but you did it, and it's like no. This is this is the life now. You like this is life. No one escapes. <laughs> oh dear, that'd be that'd be awesome, actually. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Errol, did you have any other? You're puzzle man, so this is like your territory. Oh, well, actually, we're now an hour and a half, right? Are we at so. an hour? And a- well, a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of that was. I know a lot of that was like intro and setting up and everything. That's uh, true. But I think we're we're getting close to the hour. Yeah, we are. And I have class like soon. We, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid class. Financial. Yeah, your class is at seven, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. financial statement fraud tonight. Woo. Ooh. <laughs> financial statement fraud. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You can't because I'll find it anyway. Want some violin? I do actually have my violin right here. Do you have your violin right there? Oh, play your violin! Play your violin! <laughs> Cut out this part where I'm taking out my violin. Yeah. Oh, no, we're not taking this part out. Why? No, no, no. no. 
No, no, we are totally keeping violin playing in. Just oh, no, but it. like taking, taking my violin taking out. out the violin. Oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the sorry, process sorry. of taking yeah. it out is maybe in not. Fact, maybe what we could do is we could cut and paste this into some random area of the podcast. And was like, what? Are we are we making happening? this a puzzle? Podcast puzzle? I uh, don't have a piece that's a puzzle to play at this very moment, but a sort of dream idea I have for somewhere down the line is down the line is an album called this album is a puzzle and have the every single track be a puzzle and the full album oh I've had, I've had that dream for years as well if it Gay makes wants you feel to make any a musical, better uh, yeah. I want to make a musical puzzle or a musical that's a puzzle so that's Maybe. one day pick a country any country Celtic <laughs> Celtic. Celtic yeah okay okay this tune is called The Musical Priest. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, how can we keep that as like the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) The beginning song. Anyway, thank you, Matthew Stein. (laughs) Thank you. And so uh, just to reiterate, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, just to reiterate, if people want to find you, where can they go? Yes. Uh, The best place right now to find me is on Instagram at Enigmida, E-N-I-G-M-I-D-A. And from there, you'll also find link the social media and website for this main project I'm working on right now, Escape the Plagues, which is at escapetheplagues.com or at, at, at Escape the Plagues on Instagram. Great. And uh, you'll also find a link to my newsletter in all those places. I have a weekly Friday newsletter and talk about all sorts of juicy puzzle design process things and puzzle announcements. And there's a weekly puzzle. It's lots of fun. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, And I will talk us out. Room Escape Divas is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also email us at roomescapedivas at gmail.com. We love getting emails and occasionally answer them. Once I'm done school, I'll answer them more. I'm sorry. Uh, if you find us on Facebook, you can go to Room Escape Divas Facebook look, page. Look. It's it's Enigma. <laughs> and click the like button. We have community meetups every Friday at 6 30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, where we just talk about what's going on in the world and other escape room things. And if you were on Twitter, you could use the hashtag REDivas. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.